Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I am Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I am Emily Booter, Managing Editor of No Film School. I'm Charles Hayne. I'm a tech writer at No Film School. I'm John Fusco, producer at No Film School. It's December 8th, 2016, and on this week's show, our take on the last tango in Paris controversy and why consent in your films matters, Sundance 2017's full lineup, the app that has Abrams, Spielberg, and Perry on board, wise words from Garrett Brown, inventor of the Steadicam, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. Our entire crew is here this week, except for our beloved Ryan Koo, who's still in post-production. And we're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, bringing you, as always, everything you might have missed while you were busy making films, like Ryan is doing. We're going to get right into headlines this week, kicking off with an admittedly uncomfortable story that's gotten a lot of international press coverage this past week, so you've likely heard something about it. But as always, we'll discuss what it means for indie filmmakers. And that story involves the reemerged details of the Last Tango in Paris rape scene. So, background. Last Tango in Paris is a 1973 film directed by Bernardo Bertolucci and starring a then 19-year-old Maria Schneider and a 48-year-old Marlon Brando. Bertolucci and Brando were both nominated for Oscars for the film. Now, it is about a sexual relationship between Brando and Schneider's characters, but the recent controversy has arisen around a scene where Brando rapes Schneider using a stick of butter as lubricant in the backside. The questionable details around this scene and whether or not it was consensual on Schneider's part have been around a long time since she said in a 2007 Daily Mail interview that this scene wasn't in the script and she was not informed ahead of time about how it would go down. However, it wasn't until 2013 when Bertolucci admitted in an interview that he had not, in fact, informed Schneider of all the details of the scene. He said in the interview, this is a direct quote, I didn't tell her what was going on because I wanted her reaction as a girl, not as an actress. I still feel very guilty for that. So before we get into more details about this story, I feel like I just need to come out and draw a bright line speaking filmmaker to filmmakers. There is no circumstance in which your story is more important than someone else's safety. And when I say this, I'm talking about everything from an extreme example like this case where your actor's personal security is violated to documentaries where you're potentially exposing people in vulnerable situations. So back to the specific case, since the 2013 Bertolucci interview video resurfaced and went viral this past week, he's issued a statement to Variety magazine calling the whole thing, quote, a ridiculous misunderstanding and saying the only part of the scene that Schneider was not warned about in advance was that butter would be used as the lubricant. I personally think that focusing on the details of which parts were consensual and which weren't kind of misses the point on Bertolucci's part. It's my view that if you're putting your actors in any kind of sexually compromising position, especially if they're young and inexperienced like Schneider was in this situation, it is your duty as a director to explain your complete vision and plans and get full consent from your actors before filming. Now. That being said, there are some cases where surprising your actors might have the effect of, in the words of our writer Max Winter, who covered a video essay on this topic this week, keeping your film spontaneous, or to give the work a mood of excitement it might not have otherwise. And Emily actually published a post last week. It turns out that Ridley Scott didn't warn his actors about exactly how the creature was going to burst out of John Hurt's chest in that famous scene in Alien. So their shock 
on camera was real when it happened. But there's a pretty wide gulf between improv and assault. And I think these are actually interesting and important questions to ask ourselves as filmmakers about where we draw ethical boundaries and how far we're willing to go to see our visions through. So this is the perfect topic to open up to this room full of filmmakers. What do you guys think? Well, I thought the Ridley Scott example was kind of the perfect counterpoint since it's a great reminder that context is everything like surprising actors with an extra gory alien to make an exaggerated fear response totally fine but surprising actors with sexual content they weren't prepared for totally inappropriate even if it's just the details of that content such as the butter element that's still something that should be discussed and advanced if you think about it this way it's totally okay to like run in on your roommate wearing a bear mask right totally fine (laughs) i did it all the time completely acceptable but like it's not okay to run into the room and waggle your genitals at your roommate to surprise them like it is the exact same action but when you add a sexual content to it Everything about the context changes and you owe it to people to give them communication. I could totally see how someone could use the Ridley Scott thing as an excuse, but it's like the perfect example of different content. I also found it really condescending on Bertolucci's part that like the assumption that you have to surprise your actor in order to get to some sort of real performance. Like Maria Schneider was young, but she was a very talented actress. She gives a great performance throughout that film and in The Passenger, which she made a few years later. And like. Actors can act without being surprised or tricked. And so, like, yeah, getting a more genuine fear response out of Ridley Scott, that's totally great. But, like, you don't have to trick people, especially with sexual content, in order to give them the ability to give a good performance. You know, I think that's a good point. I have to add to that, that it's not just that you should have some faith in your actors to act, but what about having some faith in yourself as a director? Like, what does it say about you as a director if you feel that you need to trick your characters into doing their job? Yeah, I just read an interview with Bertolucci's cinematographer for The Last Tango, and he came out in sort of support of Bertolucci and uh, said that the media was sort of like hyping it and twisting it into something that it wasn't. But that being said, he also talked about how Bertolucci and Brando sort of had meetings every morning to change aspects of the scene. And I could see this being a sort of like that Bertolucci and Brando talked about without informing uh, Schneider um, the morning of or the day of the shoot. And that's something that just really wouldn't even exist in today's film landscape or shouldn't exist in today's film landscape. Because I don't know if any of you remember a few episodes ago, we had a discussion about how to ask your actors to get naked. And in the SAG guidelines, there was a, a portion where I recited legally what you have to do with a SAG actor um, as far as consent. And the most important rule pertaining to this scenario in those guidelines is that the appearance of a performer in a nude or sex scene or the doubling of a performer in such a scene shall be conditioned upon his or her prior written consent. Such consent may be obtained by letter or other writing prior to a commitment or written contract being made or executed. Such consent must include a general description as to the extent of the nudity and the type of physical contact required in the scene. So basically, nowadays, a director or a producer needs to have expressed written consent for the exact type of physical activity that is going to be performed during the scene. 
Do do you know like the history of these rules? I don't. I mean, I don't know the history as far as how they've changed. I imagine they are a lot more um, stringent. Yeah, <clears throat> nowadays, just because I think you could get away with a lot more back then in every respect of exploiting your actresses or actors as a means to them getting cast or getting noticed or breaking into the filmmaking scene in some way. Well, it's also just interesting to remember that all of these rules are the result of specific fights. Like a lot of the rules that we have protecting child actors are because the children actors were so exploited in the 20s and 30s that then when they grew up, they fought to change the SAG laws. And some of them are even named after those original child actors so that the money has to be put in escrow and the parents can't steal it. And uh, it, it just seems to me reading over these rules that there are probably some very specific incidents that led to people fighting to get these rules in place. The other thing that's another interesting angle on this story to me is that Maria Snyder has been very public about this for, I don't know when she started talking about it, but for 40 years saying that was not consensual. I did not enjoy that experience. She later quit acting largely because of that experience, even though I think the passenger was shot after. And it's so interesting that still in 2016, it doesn't become news until there's like a quote unquote confession from the man. And we still are like... And he still gets the last word with this Variety interview that I mentioned where he calls the whole thing a ridiculous misunderstanding. Maria Schneider passed away, so she's no longer alive. So she can't really comment on the story. But I think, you know, all the sort of nitty gritty of this particular story aside, I think what it boils down to for all of us and our, you know, all of you who listen to this show and are thinking about and making movies is like... We've done, we've spoken to lots of actors and lots of directors through the show and through No Film School, the site. And again and again, we hear that what makes uh, an actor director relationship and ultimately a film successful is the trust that they build between each other. And so, doing, you know, pulling a stunt like this automatically, you know, pulls the rug out from any trust that you might be developing with your actors. And, um, you know, in your own self-interest, like if it doesn't, if it doesn't bother you to be um, ethically questionable, maybe it would bother you to just think about um, how good of a film you're going to have and how good of a relationship you're going to have with actors. So, from where I sit, no matter how you slice it, I encourage you all to really think about how the decisions you're making affect your cast and crew. Moving on to more fun stories in the news. So last week, starting on Wednesday, Sundance began rolling out its lineup announcements. And they started with the U.S. and World Dramatic Documentary Competitions and the next section of the festival, which is one of the most interesting, and it's characterized by bold works distinguished by an innovative and forward-thinking approach. That first slew of programming reflected new features from Sundance veterans mostly, such as Matthew Heineman, who did Cartel Land, Alex Ross Perry, who did Listen Up, Philip, and Jillian Robespierre, who did Obvious Child with Jenny Slate. David Lowry, whose film Ain't Them Body Saints was nominated for a grand jury prize at Sundance 2013, is returning this year with a Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck starring film A Ghost Story and a screenwriting credit for The Yellow Birds in the main competition. A highlight for me was seeing Kate Shortland's new film The Berlin Syndrome on the lineup. Her deeply moving film Somersault from 2004, which premiered at Cannes, stars Abby Cornish as a teenage girl from a broken home who equates sex with love and learns some lessons the hard way. It's a really incredible film. I encourage you all to see it, and it's great that she's back at it. Next, Sundance went on to release the premiere, spotlights, and midnight lineups. 
and the premiere section plays host to one of the most highly anticipated films of the festival this year. That is German director Julian Roosevelt's Manifesto, which stars Kate Blanchett in 13 different roles as she embodies the 20th century's most impassioned and influential artists. Wow. And yesterday, the final piece of the puzzle was announced, the shorts lineup, which included Kristen Stewart's directorial debut called Come Swim, Oscar-winning documentarian Laura Poitras's Project X, and Joe Talbot's American Paradise, which examines life under a Trump presidency. This year's lineup featured 36 first-time filmmakers out of 113 feature films selected. There was a 2.7% acceptance rate for features this year, but the shorts acceptance rate was significantly smaller. 67 shorts were selected, making for an incredibly low 0.75% acceptance rate for short films this year in the lineup. Why do you think that is? More people are making shorts. It's easier to make shorts, more get submitted, so therefore the number that get accepted is much, much Less. So it's not that there's like taking less short films, it's just that there's um, more people applying. There are probably more and more shorts submitted each year. Right. That speaks so highly, though, for the shorts that get in. And usually I don't even have time to see shorts at festivals, but this makes me want to really focus on some shorts at Sundance this year because, I mean, they're clearly going to be the cream, cream, cream of a very big crop. So speaking of seeing movies, hot on the tail of a post John wrote last week about Kodak's new Real Film app, which lets you find films playing in your area that were shot on actual celluloid, a new app and website called Atom, A-T-O-M, has launched to directly compete with the popular movie ticket buying app Fandango. According to the company, more than 5 billion seats go unsold annually at North American multiplexes, and they're trying to take that figure head on by making finding and purchasing movie tickets in groups easier. One thing Adam has that Fandango doesn't is an advisory board that just recently includes J.J. Abrams, Tyler Perry, and Steven Spielberg. No lightweights. Obviously, these directors have a vested interest in getting cinema seats filled, as does Lionsgate, who backs the app. But more moviegoers is good for all of us, and Adam's homepage, which is adamtickets.com, has a featured Metacritic section that currently highlights all independent films, including Moonlight and Manchester by the Sea. So I downloaded the app, and it indeed has some other advantages over Fandango besides just like a stellar advisory board. Um, It allows you to pre-order concessions so you can just get your popcorn on before you even get to the theater. But more importantly, you can see what movies your friends are interested in. You can buy tickets as a group, but enable everyone to pay for their own tickets so that you're not always the sucker paying ahead for everybody that you want to see movies with, like I always am. Me too. Suckers. (laughs) Right now, the app's only available in North America, but we hope the fact that there's more competition in the ticket-buying space will encourage these products to get better and better and ultimately get more people to the movies. We've got something really special in Gear News this month, and for that, I'm going to hand the mic to Emily Booter. So I did something really exciting this week. I had the honor of interviewing one of cinema's greatest minds, Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam and a camera operator on some of the most iconic shots in cinema history, including the hallway tracking shot and hedge maze chase in The Shining and the staircase sequence in Rocky. The 74-year-old camera operator invented the device in 1975 for one reason only, to remain faithful to the human eye. You see, Brown really hates handheld cinematography. He thinks that if our eyes are adept at stabilizing images while we walk and run and jump and tilt our heads, the camera should be able to see that way in movies. The problem, prior to 1975, 
was that cinematographers only had the option of the smooth but cumbersome dolly and the handheld shaky cam. With the steady cam, he split the difference. Cinematographers could capture stabilized footage with the steady, fluid motion of the dolly and the dexterity of handheld camera work. Now, to get into some of the mechanics here, the self-professed Newtonian physics guy did all of this by expanding the mass of gravity from the center of the camera to the operator's fingertips for precise control over movement. He built the device with an articulated arm, which mimics the mechanics of a swing arm lamp. So if you've ever seen a swing arm lamp and turned it on and tried to move it and point at the spotlight at a certain direction, the spotlight is always facing the same direction. And that's because it's attached to a gimbal. That's the way the steady cam works. Two arm segments connected by a pivoting hinge form a parallelogram, which is attached to a free-moving gimbal, and Brown was able to counterbalance the camera's weight with that of the battery and the monitor, creating a high inertial mass that effectively absorbed small movements produced by the operator. Okay, enough with the mechanics and on to Garrett's philosophy of the steady cam. So a common misconception about the steady cam is that you have to be a big, hunky, macho man to operate it with tons of muscles and all that stuff. But Brown insisted that this was very far from the truth. An ideal steady cam operator, I, at this stage in the game, has nothing to do with size and strength. Some of the very best operators are very small women. And it's shocking to see in a steady cam workshop how quickly they get it and how good they are and how slowly these big muscle band guys get it because they try to muscle everything. And the women immediately get it that it's an act of balance. You know, and once they once they accomplish that, it's, it's accessible to them. Garrett and I got to talking about um, many aspects of Steadicam operating, including what it takes to be a great operator, the art of operating Steadicam. But one of the most interesting things we talked about actually wasn't even the Steadicam. It was about the essence of ingenuity. These days, we obviously fill our lives with information as if it's the lifeblood of creativity, but we actually overstimulate ourselves. And according to Brown, what our brains really need to invent great things or to solve the next generation of problems is nothing. Brown said that some of his best problem solving happens lying in bed at 5 a.m. when he gives himself space and time to think. And I tell kids today in numerous lectures here and there on various subjects, including inventing and also filmmaking, that's one thing that is we forget to do these days because we have our noses buried in screens all the time, is that the solution to problems like that is more likely to be found inside you. You know, if you if you isolate yourself and give over yourself to this very rare act of sustained thinking about a problem. We we jump back into our screens and we jump into social media and we hunt for the answers to problems on Google and you know other people's experience. And to a slight extent at least our our fellow humans are forgetting what deep contemplation can yield for you. And it can yield that with respect to how to make a movie or how to write a script or how to finance a movie or you name it. But the superficial examination of these problems sometimes is not enough. I really think this is one of the most interesting interviews we've ever done on No Film School and will be of interest to anyone that shoots but also just thinks about um, and enjoys the visual aspects of cinema. So... 
definitely check it out on nofilmschool.com. And in the meantime, we've got some other gear news. So in other gear news, GoPro's Karma drones might have been recalled for falling out of the sky, but uh, GoPro isn't going to give up the stabilization fight just yet and is now releasing just the grip part of the drone for sale separately as the Karma Grip. This, of course, means it's going head-to-head up against the DJI Osmo and a host of other handheld stabilizers. The Karma Grip only works with the GoPro, but if you are already a GoPro owner, this is definitely a tool to consider. And then in the last bit of tech news this week, uh, DJI is continuing to expand on their already robust SDK to give developers even more access to customizing software for their drones. SDK stands for Software Development Kit, and it's the set of standards and tools uh, that allow outside software devs to build interfaces and control proprietary hardware. This week, DJI came out with big improvements for their mobile SDK for building smartphone and computer apps, and also their onboard SDK for customizing the software that actually runs on board on the airframe itself. We talk about Vimeo and Indie Film Weekly a lot, and that's because everyone knows that the world's best filmmakers call Vimeo their online home. Now, they've offered a special discount on Vimeo Pro memberships for you, our listeners. Save 15% when you go to vimeo.com professionals, get pro, and enter the code NFS at checkout. When you do, you can upload up to 20 gigs of video each week and showcase your videos with unlimited bandwidth in Vimeo's ad-free 4K player. Plus, they just launched a cleaner and more customizable profile page that helps you showcase your videos. You can even upload a cover video. You'll get access to all of Vimeo Pro's powerful tools and join a supportive community of other passionate filmmakers and video professionals, just like at No Film School. A couple things you should know. The discount's limited to one per person and is only valid for your first year of membership. And now moving on to some deadlines for this week. The Sundance Creative Nonfiction Fellowship has their deadline on December 9th, which is tomorrow. So it turns out that not all Sundance Fellowship opportunities are for filmmakers. This one is specifically designed for journalists and creative nonfiction writers, like Emily! Emily! In order to apply, candidates must have published film reviews as well as at least one piece of long-form criticism in print publications and online journals, like No Film School. No Film School! Candidates may be freelance writers or staff writers, but they must live in the United States. We do! Woo! (laughs) USA. (laughs) So the fellowship is designed to increase conversations between writers and critics and filmmakers with works in progress through participation in events at the Sundance Film Festival. In addition, financial and editorial support will be provided to encourage in-depth critical writing about nonfiction. So this means if you're one of two fellows selected, Sundance Institute and the Murray Center will provide round-trip economy travel, ground transfer, and there is no fee to apply. That economy travel sounds kind of nice. What do you think, guys? I think so. Economical. I mean, if somebody else is paying for it, hell yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And now moving on to a festival deadline roundup. These are all late and extended deadlines because we're coming to the end of this sort of rotation of festival deadlines. The year. The yeah. year, really. So if you've waited this long, come on, let's do it. Cleveland International Film Festival has an extended deadline on December 10th. This is recognized as one of the 50 leading film festivals in the world by IndieWire, as well as the USA Today runner-up for best film festival in the country. The Berlin Independent Film Festival has a December 12th deadline. That's its extended deadline. It runs in Berlin at the same time as Berlin All from February 9th to 16th, 2017. IFF Boston 
which stands for the Independent Film Festival Boston, has a deadline on December 12th. It's been named Boston's Best Film Festival by Boston Magazine in 2016, and there's a lot of Boston film festivals. This one runs from April 26th to May 3rd, 2017. It's also a really cool film appreciative community. Good audiences at those festivals. Yeah, I had a friend who screened a short there last year, and she said it was the best place she screened her short. Great. Well, if you are applying there, you can also apply to the Boston Science Fiction Film Festival and Marathon if it's a science fiction film you're trying to get seen. This has an extended deadline on December 15th. It's been running for 42 years, which makes it the oldest genre-based film festival in the United States, and it runs from February 10th to 20th, 2017. The overall takeaway here is that the festivals in February and early spring are coming up on their final deadlines. So if you know of any that you're thinking of trying to get into for that time of year, make sure you're on top of your deadlines. And in this week's Ask No Film School, our reader D. Robards asks, I've been editing my own projects and feel ready to freelance. Do I need a laptop to be an editor? Charles? The answer is probably you do, but it doesn't necessarily need to be the world's best and most expensive laptop anymore. Most of the time as a freelance editor, you'll be working in edit suites that have like a powerful desktop or maybe even just an iMac. Um, but there are going to be jobs you want to take that can't afford to be in an edit suite, especially as you're climbing up. Maybe it'll be a little indie feature with a script and director that you think are amazing or a quick turnaround job that you want to do on a Sunday and you don't necessarily want to go to a post house with. And you can save yourself a ton of driving if you've got a nice little laptop or you can also do on set work with it. Now, 10 years ago, it had to be the biggest and fastest MacBook Pro or a super powerful gaming PC to even consider video editing. But honestly, at this point, you can edit 1080p ProRes or DNxHD files on most laptops. I've cut a couple small projects on a low-end MacBook Air, and at this point, a refurbished MacBook Pro from like 2013 on the Apple Store refurb section will totally get you through. Just be sure to buy Apple Care. Now, if you're going to be doing DIT work, processing dailies, color grading, you need the most powerful laptop you can get. But if you're just running Premiere, Final Cut Pro X or Avid, for $1,500, you should be able to get a laptop with plenty of power to get you through. Um, there's a lot of activity in the PC space for filmmakers lately, and Premiere, Avid, and Resolve all run just as well on PC as they do on Mac. So that can also be an option where you might be able to get even more power for less money. Yeah, I'd just chime in by saying if you're really serious about editing as a freelancer, you should probably have some form of technology to help you edit on your own free time whenever you can, um, because really how you're going to find success in that realm is by editing as much as possible for as many people as possible and getting your name out there. So you should probably have the tools necessary for the job you're looking to apply to. That's just my hot take. I Hot agree. takes. I agree. And don't forget, you can always um, write off professional expenses like that in your taxes. So it's really worth making the investment in as much as you can. Very true. And now for movie openings. It's a slow week for streaming TV. In fact, we found nothing worth mentioning that's really coming to <laughs> Netflix or any of the other streaming services. But it's a big week for Oscar buzzy movies in theaters, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. So some of those are... Coming to theaters tomorrow, Friday, December 9th, is Jackie. 
It's Pablo Lorraine's biopic about Jackie Kennedy with a glimpse into her life after the assassination of JFK as she fights through grief and trauma to regain her faith, console her children, and define her husband's historic legacy. It stars Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy, and many say she's a top contender for the Best Actress Oscar. I saw the film last night, um, and it was much more depressing than I thought it would be. I mean, she's a grieving widow. Did you think it was going to be like a fun fest? (laughs) No, I thought it was going to be more dry and historical, you know, like a lot of those a lot of those biopics are. But it was very internal. Um, There was a lot there was a lot going on in her inner life and you didn't really get access to it. You just got very, very brief glimpses. And what you saw was quite dark. So it's it, it was very well shot, too. I would recommend that you guys see it. Also, Friday Nocturnal Animals is hitting theaters. Fashion Man turned director Tom Ford's second feature and follow-up to 2009's critically acclaimed A Single Man. It's about an art gallery owner played by Amy Adams, who's in, like, everything. She's another actress in the running for an Oscar yet again. And uh, she plays a woman who's haunted by her ex-husband's novel, a violent thriller she interprets as a veiled threat and symbolic revenge tale. Jake Gyllenhaal plays the antagonist in the film and also is said to give an amazing performance. As always. Yeah, he's the best. The film won the Silver Lion at the Venice Film Festival this year. I haven't seen it yet, but I will say that um, I've seen a couple of trailers, and wow, it's not surprising that this is a fashion uh, designer's film because it looks just so um, like dazzlingly visual and has sort of an unusual visual take. So Did you I'm, see A Single Man? I haven't seen any of his films. It's gorgeous. It's so striking. It's it's the same way. Was it, did it win anything at TIFF? I was looking, doing research for this because I remember hearing a ton about it at TIFF, but I guess it maybe didn't win anything there? Maybe I don't was, think so. There were kind of mixed reviews about it, though. Yeah. So Some people it thought it was stylish and empty, and others thought it was riveting. Cool. Well, one movie that did do really well at TIFF was La La Land. And everywhere else. Yeah, it's... A lot of people are saying it's the best movie of the year. It's up there with Moonlight, um, and I, what's the other? What, what are, Manchester by the Sea? Manchester by the Sea. I think those are probably the three uh, top contenders for Best Picture this year. And they're all in the same part of the alphabet. Wow! And it's coming out December 9th, tomorrow. This is Damien Chazelle's follow-up to Whiplash. A little more whimsical, we think. Uh, it's a musical still, following his tendencies, and it stars Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. As if Natalie Portman and Amy Adams weren't enough, Emma Stone's performance in La La Land may be the actual favorite for this year's Academy Awards. She won the Volpe Cup for Best Actress at the Venice Film Festival. The film's plot is simple enough. It's a romance about a jazz pianist who falls for an aspiring actress in Los Angeles. But the musical won the highly prized People's Choice Award at TIFF. Here's a question I have, and I know that I'm not the only one who feels this way. I hate musicals, so... Am I going to at all enjoy watching this movie? I hate musicals too, um, and so it's worrying. But I think like the fact that so many respected film critics are saying it's really great, it's probably just got much more substance than a usual musical does. At least I'd hope so. And I think that Damien Chazelle is, I mean, like Whiplash is sort of a musical in a sense. I mean, there's not these big lavish singing productions but it it's well, about it it doesn't have the the part that i hate about musicals is when characters sing to each other instead of talk like not in a song yeah i don't think i don't know we'll see if that happens but that's pretty i, I think chazelle's got pretty good filmic tendencies so 
I'd expect him to kind of write any sort of stereotypical musical uh, so levity. You've, so you've never enjoyed any musical? Um, it's not that I, I liked Hamilton a lot. It's not that I, but, but I didn't, there were parts of Hamilton that where they were supposed to be talking and they wound up singing or at what least like What do you mean, Emily? Yeah. And that's what I don't like. I like the songs themselves, but I don't like the preludes and the interstitial singing. Well, I almost wonder if the critics have loved this so much because everyone just needed a damn relief from all the heavy, heavy stuff. But I'm really excited to see it. I'm trying to get an interview, so Summit Entertainment, holla. Yeah, and I'd just say, you know, it is a movie, and it's not a play. So I think Chazelle wrote it as such, and I'd, I trust him. One thing we can definitely say is that that is going to be a strong, strong lineup of, of female actors in, in the Oscar category this year. I'll be very curious to see how it pans out. I have a shout out this week. The New York Times op doc section is always a treasure trove of short, timely, independent documentaries by some of the best in the business. So I was especially happy to see their debut this week of Marette Mueller's Dangerous Curves about a plus-sized pole dancer. Marette is a fellow film fatale, and I was lucky enough to see the film this past summer at Rooftop Films on Marette's birthday. It's a real gem and a positive, empowering, entertaining story in a moment where media's gotten pretty nasty. Dangerous Curves is nasty in the good way, and I encourage you to check it out on the New York Times site. Thank you all so much for joining us for this week's show. You can read about everything we talked about on the show and more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. We'll also have, as always, a post associated with this podcast that has all the links to the opportunities we discussed. Please subscribe to the No Film School podcast and rate us on iTunes. And, of course, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At E.L. Booter on Twitter. At Charles Hain on Twitter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John. Jim John. See you next week. That was for you, Emily. Oof.